What an interesting Lord's Day uh, to have our musicians have, have Clinton lead us in what is called a fugue, right? How do you spell that? F-U-G-U-E? Got it. Fugue. As we talked about it as a staff, uh, you know, I, I'm, we've got a great team of folks here. I remember, say, you know, I said to Clinton this week, like, so how's it going to work teaching people in a worship service? And we talked, it's at the very beginning, it's before we launch in. What, what he said to me was helpful for this morning's service and sermon. He said, we're reclaiming something the church has done for centuries. Singing in parts, we sang psalms, those are lyrics of a psalm. And what the Apostle Paul is going to do in 1 Corinthians 10 is he's going to say to you, you need to know your history. You need to know redemptive history, the tendencies of the people of God, the nature of your Redeemer, His holiness. You need to know your history. And that's how we started our worship service. Very differently than normal. If you're visiting with us, we don't usually have music lessons before we start. Um, I grew up in a family that did lots of children's choruses and music lessons, and I married a a gal who knew how to make left-handed layups. Right? I mean, so music's not in everybody's background. We do different things we've learned, but our goal is that we would grow in our ability to sing God's word faithfully. And so this morning we got a historical lesson. Paul's going to take us into the realm of our sanctification, our being the people of God, and he's going to say, let's let history speak. And let's learn from history. So what I want to do is I'm going to pray now and we'll enter into our time. I'll read the scriptures in a second, but would you pray with me? Lord, we ask that as we started our service with, uh, in some regards, a lesson from history, a singing a fugue, the way your church would, for centuries, sing psalms, hymns to you. We ask that this morning, as the Apostle Paul draws us into 1 Corinthians 10, into these words for your people, that history would speak to us, your work in history, the history of redemption. Grow us, show us how the patterns of history are repetitive, and you're unchanging, you are faithful But help us to heed the warnings of history that are in this passage this morning. I pray it in Christ's name. Amen. So if you're visiting with us, we're walking through 1 Corinthians 10. And we are, uh, through all of 1 Corinthians, excuse me, we're in chapter 10. And I would say this. We finally come to one of the most frequently taken out of context sets of verses in the Bible. I saw a coffee mug on one of those, you know, real pithy, lots of funky sayings, church websites. You can order, I guess you can order a hoodie or a coffee mug or whatever. And here's what the quotation said on a coffee mug. I can do all things through a verse taken out of context. <laughs> so think with me of maybe some, something popular, a, a very common verse taken out of context. Jeremiah 29, 11, For I know the plans I have for you declares the Lord plans to prosper you, not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. Comforting verses for sure. That's Jeremiah 29, 11. But we don't have to go very far in the context. Just go to verse 12, the next verse. And we realize that God's people are in the middle of exile. They're not in the place of blessing. They're not experiencing the welfare they think God owes to them. And we are, we're, we're supposed to know before we even read that comforting verse is actually an entire generation for 70 years The people of God are not going to be in a place of blessing. They're not going to be a place of peace. They're in Babylon. They're exiles. They're not even at home. There's no temple to worship God in. Nothing is going the way they think it should. And God says, I know the plans I have for you. I'll keep you. And verse 12 of Jeremiah 29 says, Then, after these 70 years, after this discipline, then you will call upon me, then you will pray to me, then I will hear you, then you will seek me and you will find me. The welfare is coming through the discipline. 
But how many of us have used that verse or had it used on us where when we're going through a tough time, it's, a, it's what a Christian says to another Christian to say, things are going to change for you quickly. Be comforted. God has good plans in store for you. Well, to that generation, you're going to be outside the land of promise for a very long time. We're called to study God's word in its context. And now we come to a verse that perhaps you've read before. Let me read it to you. 1 Corinthians 10 verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you, but that which is common to man. But God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation will provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Comforting, right? Surely it's got to be comforting because it says to us that God is faithful. It says to us that he's going to provide a way of escape. It says that we are not undergoing anything that's not common to man. But we're about to read the context of those verses, and I want you to have a keen ear for the three different examples that Paul uses of the kinds of temptation that were common to man, that were common to the people of God in the exodus from Egypt, and what happened that we need to heed as a warning, not just receive as comfort out of context. Okay? So stand with me, and let's read... 1 Corinthians chapter 10, 1 through 13. I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drank and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the age has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. This is the word of God. You, God. Amen. You may be seated. So Paul comes to really almost like a, a change in, in theme in this book that we've been studying. And he says, let's talk history. Let's talk history. History is extremely important. Um, we homeschool our younger children, and it's by far the favorite subject for my wife and our children, is to study history. Uh, I'm a history major, if you all didn't know that. Um, history and the study of it pulls us way out of the moment, doesn't it? It takes me from my, my myopia, from my stresses, my times, my perspective, my place, my emotions, and history often gives us an outside-in view. It gives us a longer timeline for whatever it is that we're discussing. We see patterns. Then we see patterns repeated. We see patterns in a culture that are actually duplicated in a different culture. 
We see all sorts of things, and that's where Paul starts in these verses. He says to the people of God at Corinth, he says, I don't want you to be unaware of redemptive history. One commentator says this, Paul shows from history, the history of the people of God, that the enjoyment of high privilege does not guarantee final blessing. The Israelites of old experienced redemption, baptism, and God's continuing help, but they flirted with idolatry the whole time, and nearly all of them perished in the wilderness. That's the history Paul wants us to look at. And so I hope the outline you have before you is, is, is helpful, is clear. But in verses 1 through 4, Paul says, I want you to know about the unbelievable provision and rescue of God for his people. He summarizes all of the exodus in these four verses, the exodus out of Egypt. And if you note, he says, our fathers were, and then he says the word all like five times. They were all under a cloud, all passed through the sea. On he goes. It's of note to us that he's writing to a Gentile church and he goes back to the people of Israel and he says, they're your father and they're my father. All who are in Abraham, who experienced the promise that God gave to Abraham to bless all the nations of the earth through the seed of Abraham are children of Abraham. So he says, our fathers, and he's writing to the Gentiles there in Corinth, they, they were all under the cloud. What, what does he mean by that? Well, Exodus 13 how did God lead his people through the wilderness? They were all under a cloud by day or there was a pillar of fire by night. He led them where they were to go as they were exodus out of slavery to Pharaoh. And then he says they all passed through the sea. That's Exodus chapter 14, where literally the Reed Sea, the Red Sea, it parted and God's people walked through on dry land. And then God, in his sovereign way, caused the water to fall on the Egyptians and God's people were rescued from this, the slavery that they had known. And then he says they were all baptized through Moses, into Moses by cloud and sea. Well, what, what does that mean? It's unusual language. There's no place if we look in the Exodus that they were baptized into Moses. What, what could that mean? Well, Moses is a type of Christ, a type of Messiah. And here's what I read this week in one commentator. I think it would help you. Just as baptism in one aspect brings people under the leadership of Jesus, so participation in the great events of the Exodus brought the Israelites under the rescuing leader, leadership of Moses. So they were baptized into Moses. Their allegiance was to the leader who would lead them with God leading him to their place of rescue and freedom from slavery. He goes on. Our, our fathers, they all ate the same spiritual food. The actual word there, spiritual in Greek, could be supernatural food. So this is a description in Exodus 16 of the manna, the bread that came down from the sky. And you know that the word manna, when we preach through Exodus, what does the word manna mean? It's a question. The people saw it and it landed on the ground. They said, what is it? That's the word manna. Manna means, what is it? So every morning, what is it is here again. And there's plenty of it, but not too much for each of us to indulge more than we ought. We all ate the same spiritual food, Paul says, of them. And then he goes on, all drank the same spiritual drink. This is a reference to the very front and back of the wilderness wandering. Remember, Exodus 17 is the first time that water flowed from a rock. And Moses was told by God to strike the rock. He struck the rock, water came out, God's people were nourished. But toward the end of the wilderness wanderings, it starts, it happens again. It happens at the waters of Meribah. The people are grumbling. And Moses is frustrated at their grumbling. 
God says, tell the rock to yield water. And Moses doesn't tell the rock to yield water. Moses, like the first time around, but with a bunch of anger added to it, he grabs his staff and he strikes the rock. Water does come out because God's a God of provision. But Moses was inflicted with the discipline of God. And God said, because you didn't trust me, you're going to miss out on the land that you're leading the very people of my rescue to. And so this is very symbolic to Moses, this water. And then Paul summarizes all of it. And he says, all of them drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. And that rock was Christ. Well, that's an interesting statement because Christ wasn't incarnate yet. He wasn't physically there, but Christ was present as God is what Paul is writing. In Exodus chapter 32, at the end of the, excuse me, Deuteronomy 32, when Moses sings a song at the end of the Exodus, he calls God a rock, the rock of our salvation. Apparently there was legend among, oral legend among the people of God that over the time of the wilderness wanderings, that the rock followed them. It traveled with them because multiple times God would nourish his people with water from the rock. And so Paul takes this little bit of a legend and he identifies the rock that followed them as Jesus, the one from whom they received their nourishment. And so stepping way back, Paul says, I want you to know redemptive history. The Israelites the wrestling ones, the wandering people of God, they were saved from slavery by following Moses, who was a type of Christ, who was following God by cloud and by fire. And they received supernatural provision by God for their nourishment and edification. Paul says, I don't want you to not know your history because Corinthian church and Johnson City Church, let's parallel that to all the blessings that you know in Christ. You have been rescued from slavery to sin. You were saved by and you followed Jesus, your Messiah, who follows God's leading because he's an obedient son. You've been given the presence of God, far greater than a pillar of fire at night or cloud by day. You have the presence of the Holy Spirit inside of you. And much the same as they receive supernatural bread and drink, you can sup at the table of the Lord and you can be nourished as God's people for your wilderness wandering in the middle of your rescue. And then Paul comes to verse 5, and things start to get serious. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. All that blessing, all that provision, and verse 5 does not say what we expect to read. Don't we expect to read? Shouldn't it say, and God preserved most of them? With all that blessing, with all that provision, instead we have displeasure and wrath on display. And it says, with most of them, God was not pleased. And by the way, most is a severe understatement. How many of the Israelites that wandered in the wilderness actually saw the promised land? Two. Joshua and Caleb. So Paul says we need to let history talk, Christians. Verse 6, these things took place as examples for us. Verse 11, after the fact, they were written down for our instruction. If you really unpack what he's saying, it's almost mind-boggling. He's almost saying they happened to them for our sake. They actually happened to them for their sake because they were being rescued from slavery to Pharaoh, but they actually happened for our sake to understand the nature of our salvation. And after the fact, they were written down for our instruction. The Greek there, the word instruction is, is to drill sense into us. That's why they were written down. To penetrate and to show us what are we supposed to see. 
We're supposed to see that in the middle of their rescue, they constantly desired evil. So in the middle of our rescue, we should heed the warning of history and not be constantly desiring evil. We ought not let history repeat itself, is what Paul is saying. So he pulls out three Let's just call them prefigured realities, okay? So they're things that the people of Israel went through that Paul says they apply as an example to you in your day. And I wrote them down for you. I just used three words. I think summarize each of them. Idolatry, indulgence, and indifference. Verse 6, he says, Do not be idolaters as some of them were. He says, Remember when the people sat down to eat and drink and rose to play? Now, when was that? That is a direct quotation of Exodus chapter 32, verse 6. Moses had been up on the mountain receiving the holy law of God. He came down from the mountain, Mount Sinai, and they had erected a golden calf, melted all their gold and all their, all their treasures and valuables, and had made this idol that they, they worshipped as, as God. And we read in Exodus 32, 6, that when Moses looked at them, he saw them sitting down to eat and drink and rising to play which is a very real description of a typical idol festival. Now, what is idolatry? Let me use a simple definition. Idolatry is worship of a false god. Simply stated. Let's go further. Idolatry, even just using Webster's definition, is extreme admiration, love, or devotion for something or someone. It can have that controlling effect on one's life. And the Bible says, if you have that much devotion to anything other than your creator and your redeemer, you are falling prey to idolatry. And Jesus taught on this in Matthew chapter 6. He says, no one can serve two masters. He says, either you will hate one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to one and despise the other. And then Jesus says, you cannot serve God and money. Devotion to something other than the Creator and Redeemer, the Scriptures describe as idolatry. And you can't have devotion in two places. John Calvin is known to have very succinctly said, man's nature, so to speak, is a perpetual idol factory. That's what we do. We just pump out things by our own imaginations and give our devotion to them and find our identity in them. Just reading helpful books on the nature of the struggle we have in the wilderness, you'll find authors frequently saying, parent, be careful, your parenting has not become an, adult, an idol to you. It's Everything you do is fixating on it. Success is okay. Being a great servant at work, uh, work is okay, but be careful. Your success or your status or your production don't become an idol to you that you're devoted to. Performance, pleasure, power. The heart of man is a perpetual idol factory. Paul continues, gives a different example. Verse 8, he goes from idolatry to indulgence. He says, we must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. It would be a common part of idol worship. Sacred prostitutes, it was a common part of Corinthian culture. He says, remember when 23,000 fell on a single day. This is a quotation from Numbers chapter 25. 
Israel began to indulge in sexual immorality with Moabite women while they joined in worshiping Baal. God sent a plague and 24,000 people died according to Numbers 25. So it seems to me that the book of Numbers rounds up and Paul rounded down 23,000. You have the same event. There's warning here. Isn't it interesting the link? Idolatry is giving yourself and your devotion to something that's empty. It will always lead to having to overindulge because there's nothing there for you. And so they indulged in sexual immorality. Third example, I'll call it indifference, verse 9 and 10. He says, so we must not put Christ to the test as some of them did. Notice he again emphasizes Christ as God is present. He's the rescuer. Moses is a type of Christ. But he says, remember when some of them put God to the test and they were destroyed by serpents? This is Numbers 21. The people were taking the long way around Edom and they grew impatient and they were hungry. They complained and they said, why did you save us from Egypt? It would have been better if we, if we had died there than you lead us to the wilderness to die. Give us food, give us water. By the way, the rock and the water had already happened. They should have a little bit of faith at this point. God sent fiery snakes among them as discipline. There's another illustration mentioned here. Verse 10, some of them grumbled and they were destroyed by a destroyer. This is likely Numbers chapter 16. Remember Korah's rebellion. Korah and his tribe, as well as the tribes of Dathan and Abiram, these clans, they grumbled that Moses and Aaron had the authority that they did. Who put you in charge? And God proved to them who was his servant in his position of authority. And we see that fire consumed some, as well as the ground opened up and swallowed the clans of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram, grumbling before God, showing indifference toward his holiness. Is just idolatry, indulgence, indifference, all worked out to the point of just daily complaining. The warning is clear. And now we come to our very comforting verses. No temptation has overtaken you but that which is common to man. These are not good temptations for the scriptures to tell us. They are common to us. Verse 12, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. These things happened among God's people in the middle of their rescue. So who are you if you think you're an exception to the rule, Christian, as we are living between the first advent of Jesus and his return to reign righteously on this earth? We're in the middle of our rescue. And Paul says, heed these warnings. Notice the repeated phrase. I tried to emphasize it when I read it. This is what some of them did. It's four times or so in the text. We know some means almost all of them. So that's a sober thought, isn't it? Let me ask you to take the outline points, idolatry, indulgence, and indifference. Maybe in pencil, prayerfully, write the word my in front of each of those words. My idolatry. My indulgence. My indifference. I want you to see the progression. This is what stood out to me heavily this week. So understand, I, here's what it might look like. They, Paul puts these in a row. You or me, we give control, worship, devotion to something that's not worthy of control, worship, or devotion. 
Because it's empty, it will be inherently unsatisfying. When it's inherently unsatisfying, we will begin to indulge in ways to make it more satisfying. But because it's empty, you can't just indulge and then stop. Indulgence leads to indulgence, leads to indulgence, leads to indulgence. And if I say I worship God, my rescuer in Christ, while I'm constantly indulging in things that he's rescuing me from, I become a very indifferent servant. Not a servant at all. And these warnings of the wrath through those who are indifferent to God ought be heard with the Spirit's help in my heart. So I sent an email to you this week about the image of a cascade of water just going down. Just consider the cascade of idolatry that isn't real, so it flows into indulgence that doesn't satisfy, so it flows into indifference. And Paul is saying to you and I, this is likely what you know in the wilderness. Heed the warning. This is what history reveals. Sin cascades. Now, I'm going to get heavy for a second. This week, a report was released from the International Board of Directors of Ravi Zacharias Ministries of a man who preached the gospel his whole life was a great apologist. They hired a firm, Miller & Miller Law Firm, to investigate corporate and sexual crimes, and they released their findings this week of a man who constantly committed sexual abuse, rape, all these things that are completely antithetical to the grace and mercy of God. Another celebrity leader with some orthodox teaching and fantastic apologetics had his immorality wreck him and wreck the lives of so many people. Here's the question that bothered me this week as I actually read a lot of the, the summaries of the findings because I know my heart and I know ministry, but by the grace of God, right? Why didn't he stop? That was my question this week. Why didn't he stop? Something goes on decades. Why not stop? Here's why. Because in idolatry, being devoted to something that's empty will never satisfy you, so you can't stop. And if you can't stop, you'll indulge in increasingly destructive forms of it, and you won't care who's destroyed in the process because it's empty indulgence, so you need more of it. And if you indulge and indulge and indulge and you're not satisfied, you become completely indifferent to it and you don't even feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit anymore and you're worthy of the wrath of God. And I'm not making any judgment on that man's salvation, but I know my own heart. What should cascade down generation to generation among the people of God? Isn't it justice and righteousness and mercy that's supposed to flow down? Don't we read that? Doesn't Deuteronomy 6 say that we should have the law of God on the frontals of our heads and we bind it around our finger and so every time we talk with our children, our families, we're passing on the abundant mercy and grace of God and that's what should flow down and cascade among the people of God. And Paul says, heed the warning of Scripture. Most of them, what cascaded was idolatry, indulgence, and indifference. And go look through the history of God's people generationally. What happened? Let me ask you, if you write my idolatry, my indulgence, my indifference, have you seen it already cascade into the lives of those around you? Where they struggle with the same idolatry, indulgence, and indifference as do you? 
or they've been impacted by you. When righteousness, justice, mercy, love, grace, forgiveness, ought the fruits of the Spirit ought be what flows down from you. Paul's giving heavy warning. If you're a husband and a father, what cascades down from you? If you're a wife, if you're a, a daughter, if you're a teen among your peers, what, case, what cascades down from you to them? Paul says, heed the warning of history. Take temptation serious. These things were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the age has come. Have an eternal perspective on the God whose activity in all history is a God of wrath and rescue. And you, if you live in the day of the church, I invite you to come Friday night to our eschatology talk, but we live in the last days is what's being told to us right here. On whom the end of the age has come. We've got all the blessing in Christ, all the spirit-filled capacity, should we not heed the warning all the more. Let the self-confident take heed lest they fall. If this is history's pattern, where do we find any comfort at all? I mean, how do you know if something's an idol in your life? Well, let me ask you, does your de devotion to it satisfy you? Or do you need more of it? You know your self-righteousness is an idol if everybody around you is always feeling your demand for them to perform better for you. And you're never going to be satisfied. No one will ever be good enough because you're devoted to your own being right. Or lust starts out with an innocuous observation at a movie here or there that turns into, every once in a while, pornography that turns into constant, that turns into homes no longer having a husband or a wife. Where's our confidence? if we have the same pattern here. I'm going to let the silence sit, but we're going to turn toward the very last verses. In their context, they're gorgeous, aren't they? Take heart. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with temptation, he'll provide a way of escape. That word escape is essentially the Greek word for exodus. He will exodus you out of the slavery that you wrestle with. God is sovereign over all temptation, but he's not the tempter, but he provides a way of escape. Notice the text says, the way of escape. Do you see that? What is the way of escape for a sinner caught in a world of idolatry, indulgence, and that leads to indifference? Well, aren't we baptized into Jesus? Isn't that where Paul has already made the connection? Who is Jesus? You and I are not the exceptions to this pattern in history, but who was the exception to the pattern in history? Jesus. He was tempted as we are, but without sin. Jesus is the exception. Jesus is the rock from whom cleansing water flows. Jesus underwent all the temptation of sin. Think of Matthew 4 when he was tempted in the wilderness. He was tempted as we are. As one commentator says, God has himself been along our path in Jesus. 
How do we get to Christ as the way of escape from our temptation? How do we get there? Here's what I would propose. We heed the warning. You go through warning before you just try to find comfort. That's what Paul wants us to understand. You and I, we need to go through warning, through historical examples of wrath to realize the common temptation that we have that calls for a rescuer with greater power than we have. We then need to find awe and devotion to him who perfectly performed as our substitute amidst the temptations we can't stand strong under, who bore all the weight of your and my failure, our idolatry, our indulgence, our indifference, And when we turn by the Spirit's conviction and help and repentance and say, save me, the Father looks on him as the faithful Father of eternity and says, I laid all of the cost of your rebellion on him. Do you understand? We, We don't read Scripture or live life out of context if we're Christians. We can't live it out of context of the history of redemption and not out of context of the history of the life of Christ. Because if we do, then we'll just have such a self-focused view that we'll say, my God is nice and he's comforting to me and I can bow to whatever I want. I can indulge as many times as I want. I can come and worship here, but really be indifferent in my heart and it doesn't matter. Oh yes, it matters. It costs the life of our Savior. But the fact that we stand here each week and take the Lord's Supper it costs the life of our Savior, is the way of escape for repentant sinners to say to God, remind me again that you're faithful. He says, I'll I'll remind you over and over and over again. And where does the Apostle Paul go in the book of 1 Corinthians? He's going to go straight into chapters that teach about the Lord's Supper. Next week. The Lord's Supper is evidence that God is faithful. He's made the way of escape for us. In his son, Jesus, who was the exception. But you have to heed the warning. So my prayer for you and for me this week is a life of radical, a week of radical days and hours of radical repentance. Where things we may be devoted to have, have lost their shiny gaze. And instead of us running from them and saying, I'm done with that, anathema to that. Many of us try to make it more shiny because it's empty. If your life in Christ is coexisting with indifference and indulgence and idolatry, there's no guarantee of the promised land for you because you may not be in Christ. That's what Paul is saying. But if you repent... Your rescue's already finished in God's sight. Let me pray. Father, would we heed the warning of history? Would you bless us as we study this book in its context? I pray for each of us in this room, those who are hearing in their homes, upstairs, outside the front room, that we would go through warning into the wonder of our rescue in Christ, the way of escape. But would you forgive us if we are increasingly idolatrous and think little of it, excessively indulgent and haven't picked up on the the fact that we'll only indulge because it's empty. 
unless we turn and repent, but we won't turn and repent if we've grown indifferent and we think that we can coexist as Christ when we're bowing the knee to things that would destroy our very rescue. So we ask for your help. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Show us your victory over our sin. Show us the way of escape again, even now through our time in the Lord's Supper. In Christ's name, amen.